Thank you very much, Cole and Debbie. Brothers and sisters, we are continuing our series on four Greek words for love. We have already talked about two of the words, and today we're going to talk about the third. Can you remind me what the first two words were? And, and you don't have to remember the Greek words uh, specifically. If you do, you get bonus points. But uh, remember the concepts, the ideas. What kinds of love were we talking about? The first one was... Sorry? Uh, no, yeah, no, that was the second one. That was last week. We did... What's that? Yeah. Well, yeah. So it was storge love, which is familial love. The love of the whole family was, was the first one we did. Um, and we talked about, uh, we talked about how um, you know, we are called to live as family. And we, we outlined the idea. Remember, we reminded ourselves of the saying uh, that is out there that blood is thicker than water, which is rooted in sort of some idea that actually our blood ties, our biological ties between sons and, and, and daughters and parents and brothers and sisters are somehow stronger and thicker and more important somehow than the ties that are created between believers who are baptized by water. But we said that that is precisely the opposite of what Jesus teaches us. He teaches us that ultimately our ties uh, that are created through our, our, our giving our lives to Jesus just as Jesus gave his life for us and our ties therefore to one another as believers ought to be um, in some senses thicker than blood, right? So we said you know, water is thicker than blood. Um, and then we talked about sibling love, brother-sister love, which is philia love or filio love, depending on the conjugation and all that stuff. And uh, we talked about how um, we are all brothers and sisters. And indeed, uh, even Jesus considers us to be his siblings in some way. And we are co-heirs with Christ. Well, today we're going to talk about, and, and I don't mean to shock you or make you uncomfortable. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about what I've been calling romantic love, but the Greek word is eros, uh, which is, you know, ooh, ears burning. Ooh, yeah. But that's okay because we're, we're not, we're not, there's so much more to it. Part of the reason that, that when we hear eros, we think, ooh, right, is because we, have, we live in uh, what people call an over-sexualized culture, right? We all know, if we think about it, that romantic love, romantic love is far more than simply sexuality, right? It is far more than that. And this is why it is uh, one of the key metaphors for the relationship between God and the church, God and his people. So before we get too much further, though, we want to read the scriptures. So we are going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through to uh, 33. But before we get there, 
I want to give you a little bit of the context. Remember, this is uh, obviously a letter that Paul wrote to the people of Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus, hence the title Ephesians, right? And, and, and in it, he is, um, in this particular section, he is outlining some principles for Christian uh, households related to God's relationship with us. And, and this is really important because for the Christ follower, for the Christ follower, which hopefully is, is all of us, there is no such thing as something in isolation from God. Right? The idea that you would have something separate from your relationship with God is just nonsense according to the gospel, right? You can't say, well, this is my finances, so that's separate from my relationship with God. It has nothing to do with that. Or this is science. It has nothing to do with God. Or this is, uh, this is you know, what I'm learning in school, and it has nothing to do with God. Or this is my work life. I, this is Monday, right? I'm not, I'm not going to do... I, God has nothing to do with Monday. God is a Sunday thing. No, no, no. All of that is utter rubbish and nonsense, according to the gospel. And so everything is seen in the light of God and his relationship with us and ours with him and so on, right? And so in Ephesians chapter 5, it starts off in verse 21 with this, and this is really important because sometimes people skip over this one and go to verse 22 to start off, but that's wrong, that's bad. Right? Verse 21 starts off with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's really important. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because then it goes on in verse 22 and it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Which people will take and they'll twist it and they leave that first, that verse 21 out and, and they'll just say, oh, wives have to submit to their husbands. <laughs> and they ignore the verse that's right before it that says submit to one another. You can sense a little bit of hostility in me in that one. So get it through your heads if you're living in some delusional world where, where women have to submit to their husbands. Okay. But remember, it's actually submit to one another. And why, why does this wives submit to your husbands come up? Uh, good question. All right. So now, uh, ladies, these questions are for you. Uh, how many of you are allowed to vote in Canada? Okay, good, good. Lots of you. How many of you are allowed to vote in congregational meetings? Yeah, good, excellent. How many of you are allowed to own property? Yes, good, wonderful. How about have your own bank accounts? Yes. Uh, make your own money? Yes, right? Um, you know, do taxes, because that's a real privilege. Yeah, <laughs> you're all allowed to do that. You have, I, I know, and we should all be aware of this, that things are not equal. Still, in this world, women are not treated equally to men in many, many areas. It is also true that back in Paul's day in Ephesus, there was a much greater gap between 
what women could and could not do uh, versus what they can today. Women were not even in some cases, in some legal sort of understanding, women were not even considered persons, right? They, they weren't allowed to vote. They weren't allowed to generally to own properties of various kinds. They weren't allowed, except for certain, uh, you know, exceptional circumstances, they weren't allowed to do the whole business thing and so on and so forth. Th- th- these things would all come under the head of their household. But then along comes the gospel, and, and you have to remember that this is the same Paul who says in Christ there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. Right? Uh, this, is, this is the Paul who proclaimed the freedom of the Gospel. And the women who understood the Gospel understood that it offered tremendous freedom for them and empowerment for them. It offered a whole new way of life. Now, sometimes they took it and ran with it in an absolutely fantastic way. Right? You, you hear about Lydia, uh, not my Lydia, who wonderful as she is, is not the same Lydia as the Lydia you hear about in the Bible, who was actually not only one of the first Gentile leaders of the church at all, um, probably, and uh, you can debate this with me later if you want to, probably one of the first Gentile pastors in the scriptures as well because the people who hosted the church were also often the leaders of the church right and and there are many other examples of biblical women women's emancipation as it were in the scriptures but then sometimes sometimes that was taken not lovingly Sometimes, right? So women who grabbed hold of their freedom and, and ended up not being always lovingly gracious with the, the men or the other women who might be struggling with some of the freedoms and liberties they took. This is why Paul talked about people, women being silent in the church and about how things needed to be done in decent and good order. Not because everywhere in all contexts should all women be silent in the church, but because in that particular context, the women, some of the women have grabbed hold of the freedom that was legitimately there for them in Christ and had used it in a way that was unkind and unkind gracious or not gracious to the people around them, right? They were doing things that were hurting their fellow believers. Okay, so Paul here in verse 22 says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, reminding them that though they have new freedom in Christ, uh, they need to also be submitting themselves to one another too, right? 
Uh, and then we move on uh, a little bit. It talks about the husband being the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, which starts this metaphor of the bride. Christ being the husband and the church being the bride. And, and this is where it really starts to become a little bit difficult because Paul, Paul has this thing. And it's really cool. This is, this is what Paul does. Paul gets excited. Right? Paul gets very excited about things. And when he gets excited about things, sometimes things mush together. And they weave together in a way that isn't always entirely easy to pull out the threads. Every once in a while, Paul will be talking and he'll just get excited and he'll start praising God in a, in a psalm that he's made up on the spot. And you're sitting there, what are you doing, Paul? Like, I mean, this is cool and all, but we're talking about something else. Right? But it, it doesn't matter for Paul. He's just he's caught up, he's excited, he's enthusiastic. Well, here he's really getting into the metaphor of Christ and the church as husband and wife and seeing how it connects to the reality of our relationships as uh, romantic relationships, our relationships as husbands and wives, right? Our relationships as girlfriends and boyfriends or whatever, right? This is, this is what Paul gets excited about. He says, oh, you gotta, you gotta see it. You gotta get it. You gotta understand, right? Because he goes on and he says, he says these words, right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water to the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And we're thinking, wait, 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 okay, Paul, are you talking about still Christ and the church, or are you talking about husbands and wives, right? Like, am, am I supposed to somehow make my wife holy? Uh, am I supposed to cleanse her with washing, uh, with water through the word? Am I supposed to present her to myself? As a radiant, wait, no, obviously not. As a radiant church, uh, without stain, like, it gets a little complicated, right? But Paul is drawing out the metaphor, right? And what's at the heart of the metaphor? How does Paul start? Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? That's where it starts. Because that's really what is at the heart of Eros love. At the heart of Eros love is a love so deep and so intimate that the spouses will give up everything, literally everything for the other. In this case, it's emphasized husbands and wives because the wives are the ones who have literally no power from the world's perspective. And so the husbands must take especial care to care for their, their wives who are unable because of legal and cultural systems to do so for themselves. See, this is in stark 
contrast to what the Pharisees asked Jesus. Remember when the Pharisees came to Jesus at one point and they said to him, hey, Jesus, Rabbi, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? Right? And Jesus says to them, well, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but Jesus says to him, no, no, Moses only allowed for divorce because your hearts were hard. Right? And really, the, the only reason <clears throat> for a husband to divorce his wife would be extreme marital unfaithfulness. That's the only legit reason. Right? And again, Jesus is emphasizing that answer just right in line with Paul because though both of them, Jesus and Paul, know the freedom that women have been given through Jesus Christ, through God's desire for them, though they are aware of that, they are also aware of the constricting social and cultural realities that mean that if a wife is divorced from her husband in in the Jewish culture of the time, she's in really desperate trouble. She can't very easily make a life for herself. She has to rely on kinsmen, redeemers, and relatives to take care of her. And maybe, hopefully, if she has children who are old enough, children to take care of her and so on. But she is utterly and completely dependent. And so Jesus says, no. And you can almost hear him say, no, you morons. Right? You can't just do that. Your wife is a person. And she's a person who happens to be subjugated to all kinds of cultural and social realities that mean that she is pretty powerless. And so you better protect her and love her and support her and care for her. Now today, today things have changed quite a bit. They're still not by any means perfect. It is not true that women have the same freedoms and, and power as men do, generally speaking, right? It, you know, we like to pretend to ourselves in some ways that we do, but we don't, right? That's not the way it is. And so men still need to remember this reality and support and stand by and love their wives very, very much, right? But it is also true, I think, safe to say, that, that wives, how many of you are in an arranged marriage? Any of, any of you in an arranged marriage, right? Nobody was forced to get married to their spouse? Well, you don't need to answer that, right? <coughs> That's okay, right? Mostly, most of us are in relationships more or less of our own choosing, right? Um, and we need to mutually love one another. My wonderful wife needs to be willing to lay down her life for me, just as I am, hopefully, willing to lay down my life for her. So you can read that this way, mutual, right? 
Remember, of course, with Christ and the church, it's a little bit different because, well, a lot different because Christ, of course, is always in an infinitely more powerful place than we are as the church. But the principle of loving self-sacrifice is still very much there. Right? Jesus clearly gives up his life for us, for the church. So clearly. But then also, Jesus asks us to give up our lives for him. Right? And, and the reality that the, the sacrifice that Jesus made and the sacrifice that I make can, cannot, they don't equal. They don't equal. But they're still both sacrifices, right? Jesus says, unless someone dies and is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless, in other words, you are willing and able and ready and will sacrifice absolutely everything for me, you cannot come into the kingdom of heaven. And so we see that this eros love, this romantic love, which is used as a metaphor for Christ and the church, it is so beautiful because it is ultimately a love of self-sacrifice. I won't get too, too much into that because that starts to bring us into agape love, right? But romantic love is connected. All of these loves are connected, right? Listen to what Paul continues to say. In this same way, right, Jesus did all these things for the church in order to present her to himself as holy and blameless. And then he says, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And this, remember, this gets into the whole idea of, of fruit versus efforts, right? Um, Right? When we talk about uh, works-based righteousness, we're talking about people trying to earn their salvation or earn God's approval by doing good things. Right? And the gospel is very clear that that's not the way it works. But it doesn't mean that you don't do good things. Instead, what you do that is good is fruit that comes out of your relationship with God, about God's love for you and, and how you are expressing your gratitude and love for God in doing these good things. And if these good things are not there, then clearly something is wrong with your relationship with God. And the question mark comes up, do you, do you, do you really love God? Because if you did, there would be fruit, right? And so to hear, right? If you really love your body, hopefully, you're going to take care of it. Now, I am one to talk because there are some things that I should do to take care of my body that I don't. But the reality is that we do feed and care for our body just as Christ does the church, right? For we are members of his body. He who loves his wife loves himself. She who loves her husband loves herself. 
So and then and then Paul moves on verse 31 to quoting from scriptures. He says, "For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery. But I am speaking of Christ and the church. So here is something interesting. So we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, right? It's not (laughs) dangerous ground talking about the Trinity because it's always difficult and it's never perfect. But there is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, but one God. We don't worship three gods, we worship one God. But we don't worship one God who wears different masks at different times. No, no, no. One God, three persons. Weird. Don't know how to explain it, but that's the way it is. One God in three persons. They are in constant loving relationship within one another. Eternal relationship with one another. In fact, they are so close. And and think about this. Their love is so intimate that they are one God while still, still being three distinct persons. Right? Take the metaphor of a husband or a man leaving his parents and joining together with his wife and becoming one flesh. That love, when it is at its healthiest and strongest, it means that. We are one. We're still two people. Gwyneth and I are still two people, but we are one. I don't know how that works, but it does. When you love someone so much that you essentially become one with them. It is a beautiful and powerful thing. And it is as close as we can get to understanding the oneness within the threeness of our Trinitarian God. And it is the closest thing that we can come to understanding what Christ intends and desires and has done for us as the church. God wants with us the same intimacy that God has within God's self. How amazing is that? This is why Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And then he switches back. He says, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. It's interesting. That's always a little bit weird for people. But again, remember that this is in the context where the wife didn't necessarily have a whole lot of choice in getting married to the husband. Right? You know, um, Gwyneth uh, you know, Gwyneth's parents and my parents, they made a deal. They connected us together. Uh, sorry, Gwyneth. Right? I, I, yeah, you definitely got the short end of the stick on that one. Yeah, sorry about that, honey. Right? Um, right? 
she doesn't have a lot of choice, and she certainly doesn't have a lot of power to leave the relationship. So Paul doesn't lay too heavy a burden on them, knowing that they have very little power in this context, right? In our context, I think it's probably safer to say, you know, husbands need to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives need to love their husbands as Christ loved the church. That's just the way it has to be, right? But brothers and sisters, we can see. We can see the intimacy of the love, the eros love, and how God uses that as a metaphor for God's relationship with us throughout Scriptures. This Christmas season, may we remember the intimacy that God has brought to us. And may we long for it and work for it just as we would in our marriages. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your deeply intimate and powerful relationship of love within the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally loving one another in a relationship so close that it can truly be said that You are one. Father, help us. Help us in our marriages to also come towards that kind of relationship. And though we know, O oh God, that in this world that will never be possible for us in the same way that it is for You, Lord, may we come ever closer to that in our marriages through love and self-sacrifice. But Lord, may we not only do that in our marriages, may we also look to our marriages to remind us of the relationship that You have with Your church, O God. Where the most intimate of human relationships can scratch the surface of the relationship between you and your church and point us in the right direction. As we love one another, O oh God, may we remember always you and your church. May we act as the bride of Christ. May we act the way we were made to be through Jesus' love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.